reiterate how um, much of a delight uh, and a joy it is to be here. Uh, I, um, I don't say this lightly. I pray for you guys. I do. I don't pray for many churches, but I pray for you guys. Um, I have uh, my heart just, I have a passion for churches that are gospel-centered, that are based in communities, that are courageous, that are brave. Um, and it's just such a joy to be here, not just to share the word, but to, to see this church with my own eyes, the church that Ephraim, Rob, and you know, Richard, and Mark, Neil. I've known these guys for years. I've never been here. So, you know, it's a long time coming, but it's great. Um, absolute privilege to be here. And the, the content of my prayer for you guys is that you, very simply, that you would be a beacon of light in your community. Okay? I love London to death. It's one of the greatest cities in the world. And I've, been, I've lived in a lot of great cities. Tokyo, Singapore, Boston. You know, I'm here in London. And London is unique. It is diverse. It is, uh, you know, full of life. But you know what it doesn't... You know what it needs desperately more than anything else? It needs Jesus. It really does. Um, and so churches like Ecclesia... Uh, you know, strategic churches that, that I uh, pray for. So I hope you're encouraged by that. You know, know that you're not just some little church, you know, in Lewisham alone. We pray for one another. Amen? Amen. We pray for one another. We encourage one another. Uh, and that's why I'm here. You know, it's a joy to be here. Two weeks before I'm moving, we, you know, we're all just boxed up, you know, and we can't even find our clothes and whatever. <laughs> but we're here because we we. we we are partners in the gospel together. Um, so thank you for having me. Um, I've been asked to preach on Ecclesiastes 2 uh, this morning. And um, if I'm honest, uh, I'm a bit terrified. I'm an Old Testament professor. And I'm a bit terrified. In fact, I even tried. Pastor Rob will tell you this. I tried to get out of it, didn't I? I emailed him. I said, you sure you want me to preach on this? I can preach on other things. Um, but he insisted, so here I am. Um, it's a difficult text, okay? It's difficult. And there are a lot of complexities here. There are a lot of challenges to trying to understand this book correctly, let alone this passage, okay? Um, Pastor Ephraim talked about how much, what, is your favorite book in the Old Testament? That's what you said, right? Right out of your mouth. He's either crazy or he's brilliant, Okay? Um, to take a church through the book of Ecclesiastes, you know, it's a, it's a thing of genius or it's, it's madness, <laughs> right? It's meaningless. Um, <laughs> but, you know, kudos to you guys. Seriously, most churches will avoid Ecclesiastes. They will. Or they'll just make it really simple, right? They'll say, everything's meaningless, you know, just honor God with your life. Full stop. Yeah, something like that, Okay. But, let me say this, it might be a difficult book. But if you can get your head around it, if you can start to understand what is going on in this book, you will not only live a full life of joy, the life that Jesus came to say, right? I've come to give you life and life to the full. Not only will you live life like that, you're going to be a natural evangelist. 
Okay? Why? Well, because this book, in this book, right, you've got, I mean, every single person that you will come across in life will be asking questions in this book. Your friends, your neighbors, non-Christian relatives, right? They're going to be asking the questions, what's the meaning of life? What's the point of working, right? If only I could get that job, life would be sorted. If only I could win the lottery, right? I could figure out everything. And when someone asks you that, okay, if you can get your head around this book, it's like a wide open door. And you just walk right in and you say, let's talk. Let me tell you what the Bible says. And you know what? This book will give you some answers that will blow your mind. Okay? And it might bring some sense into people who are struggling with life's biggest questions. You know what? These questions are serious. Uh, I've lost people to suicide, friends. I've lost people uh, to serious, serious depression like almost untreatable, it feels like. Uh, and they ask these questions, okay? So um, keep your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And let me pray for God's blessing before we begin. Heavenly Father, we need you desperately. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd come and you would be our teacher, and not just Kohelet. We ask that you would come and do surgery in our hearts where there are areas where we have been stubborn, refusing to listen to to you, we ask that you would come and soften our hearts and break us down, change us, transform us into the image of your Son through this word. Amen. Okay, one of the reasons this book is so difficult, I think, to understand, I've I've wrestled with this for about two weeks, okay? Um, I've never preached Ecclesiastes, I've studied it, and it still does my head in, okay? One of the reasons it is difficult is that you have a tension inherent all through the book. On the one hand, you've got the wisdom of the world, right? And on the other hand, you've got what this teacher knows to be true about God. And throughout this book, you've got these polar extremes, and there is this battle between human observation, empiricism, fancy word for that, and divine revelation or theology, okay? The world is saying one thing, and from a human vantage point, when we look at it, when we experience it, when we reason and think about it, it makes a lot of sense. But then we've got something else here, right? We've got the word of God that says something that just runs against the grain of everything we know. And there's, so there's this tension that is going on between these extremes. You may have experienced that, where the world's telling you a version of things, but deep down in your heart, in your conscience, you know something's not quite right. Now, I've, I'm sure you've got your stories of, of, of that type of um, dissonance, that type of just conflict in your head. I've experienced it many, many times. I'll just share a couple with you just to give you a little bit more insight into who I am. Um, after university, I started um, work in the financial sector, all right, the banking industry, the big, bad, evil, you know, capitalist cronies. Um, and, you know, 
I was sat in front of a screen, actually multiple screens, analyzing numbers, looking at a computer screen 50, 60, 70 hours a week. And what for? Well, essentially, if I'm going to be cynical, to help rich people get filthy rich, right? Now, I'm a Christian at this point. You can understand. I'm asking myself, what am I doing? How can I justify this when Jesus gives the great commission? You know, and I tried. I remember trying. I said, oh, it's okay. John Wesley said, make lots, give lots. I can't remember what I'll But he basically, you know, and you try and you, you try to connive things and make it work, don't you? I'm not saying you can't be a Christian and be a banker. Don't, don't mishear me. But I wrestled with that question. It's a hard question. And I didn't really think through Ecclesiastes. I'll give you a different example. I eventually ended up going into ministry, right? I became a pastor, um, well, I worked on a pastoral team. And, you know, I put so much pressure on myself to preach a good sermon. Got to be able to get into those thick skulls. You know, why aren't they, you know, why they keep messing around and doing this? If I can just preach the word of God. And that just took a lot of time meeting with people, you know, house groups. It just goes on and on and on. And I had this Palm Pilot. Does anyone know what a Palm Pilot is? Am I dating myself? Okay. Palm Pilot is like a, it's a little bit bigger than an iPhone. It's plastic. A little pen. And the only thing it did was keep a diary for you, right? So your iPhone, you watch movies. This is back in the day. And we thought it was the coolest thing. Uh, I, I had the stylus, and it would take me three times as long as just writing it down on a piece of paper. But I would write, you know, church meeting, whatever, and you, you hit the dots. And, I mean, I, this was, must have been 20 years ago. I can't remember how long it was. Needless to say, the, the, it doesn't exist anymore. It, only, it, was only, it was a fad for about a year or two. But my Palm Pilot was so chock full that I couldn't fit anything in. My life was spinning out of control. And I'm in ministry. And my body gave up. I found myself um, lying in a bed in a hospital. And I'm asking, you know, questions to God. I'm saying, God, what is going on? Why do I feel so empty in my heart? I'm serving the church, right? And all of my work just felt like it was just useless. That's how I felt, if I'm honest. That's the question, I think, that Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and 2 wants to force us to think about. And it's going to start giving us an answer, okay? Not directly. It's very interesting what's going on here, okay? This teacher, Kohelet, let's call him Kohelet, okay? Takes us on a journey. It's it's an intellectual quest, okay? If you want to use a fancy term, epistemological journey, He's trying to find, he wants to make sense in his head of what he sees, what is going on. And he does it quite sort of in a sneaky business, right? Subversively, through the back door almost, okay? He gives us the answers by showing us how miserable our life is in the way that we understand life, okay? On this side, remember that, okay? And he's going to basically say, look, life as you know it, yeah, it's terrible, it's terrible. It's meaningless, in fact. And he does that so you'll want something 
else. He wants to lead you to everlasting life, to the waters that will satisfy. So this is the reason why for the last what, two, three weeks that you guys have been thinking about Ecclesia, it's just been bleak. It's been awfully bleak, right? Um, at least that's the way that I read it. So what he does, he says, okay, let's test this tension out. Let's test it out. And he says, I will adopt the philosophy and the view that the world teaches. Let's, let's, I'm going to use your rules, okay? And he's going to observe with his eyes everything he sees about life. He's going to take notes, and he concludes. This was, you know, the first week, I think, um, Pastor Rob preached on this, right? And he concludes that everything's meaningless. And then he says, okay, I've observed everything. It's all meaningless. I'm going to throw myself into the fire, right? I'm going to get on the boat. I'm going to experience life. And I'm going to, you know, do what the world says. Pleasures are good, right? Do what you see fit. And he does it. He experiences everything. And that's what I think you guys heard last week, um, Pastor Ephraim, or whenever he preached. And then... He says, I'm going to then use my intellect and I'll turn to wisdom to make sense of this life. Okay, because that's a good thing, right? Surely, right? And that's what we're going to look at a little bit today. Um, and, and basically, he just throws out the challenge. Let's see what happens. Let's see if on the basis of all the things that we see, we observe, we experience, that we can reason, if we can find the solution to life's big problems. All right, so let me just review quickly um, what we've looked at so far in the book of Ecclesiastes because it's really going to help us understand the really key verses at the end of this chapter that will shed light on where this book is going, all right? Now, a couple weeks ago, this entire quest starts out with a very innocent little question. Chapter 1, verse 3, if you want to look back there, okay? What do people gain from all their labors? That's how the book begins, okay? It's a question that you and I, we always ask, okay? I ask it all the time. Okay, what, what's the point of my work? Is it, does it lead to anything? It's, it's, it's not a, you know, it's an innocuous question, okay? We're allowed to ask that question. You wake up in the morning, you, I, I don't know how you commute to work. Uh, if you go on the tube, you know, you just get like crammed in like a pack of sardines, you know, smelly people all around you. You get to work and you just, you know, toil, sweat, labor. You're exhausted. You come home. If you have kids, you're like, oh my goodness, you got to help kids with homework and then put them down to sleep. And, you're, and then you're completely done, aren't you? And then you got, if you're married, you got a spouse. You got to like connect with her and communicate with her. Otherwise, your marriage will go down the tank. So, you know, you start talking before you know it, you're asleep. And then you wake up the next morning and you just go round and round and round like a hamster in a wheel. Have you ever seen a hamster in a wheel? It's going nowhere. Okay? What on earth is the point of work? You ever feel like that? I want you next time, um, tomorrow morning when you go to work, whether it's on a bus, on a tube, I want you to look around. Look around at the people. Okay? And... It's not rocket science. You can look into their eyes and you will be able to see that on the whole, people look miserable. Is that true? 
People look miserable. Last year, there was a very reputable survey that was undertaken to determine how happy people are in the workplace, okay? Here are the numbers. 60%, that's about, let's see, from about here all the way over there, okay? You lot are not happy at work, okay? Seriously. 40% 40 of the people, you know, they're either managing, they're okay, they're not necessarily unhappy, 60% of people in this country are dissatisfied with work. 59% of men are, would, if they could, go to another job. 59%. And 56% of women say the same thing, that they're looking for work. They're not happy. What's the point of work? That's the first question. And it's a good question, because we're not satisfied. You know, obviously, it says... But instead of finding answers to that question, here's the crazy thing. That question leads to even bigger question. It opens up a can of worms, in fact, a truckload of worms, because before even being able to answer that question, we're thinking, what's the point of life? You ever thought that? Where you think, oh, work is miserable, and that sort of leads to despair, and then it becomes even a bigger sort of thinking where you think, what am I doing? What am I doing on this earth? What is my existence all about? And this little question starts sort of forcing us to think about the bigger existential questions of life more generally, okay? And that's what verses 4 through 11 in chapter 1 are all about, right? In verses 4 through 11, it's moved on from what's the point of working hard to what is the point of this life, this miserable existence, okay? Like the sun that rises and sets, like the wind that blows this way and that. There's no sense. There's no order, like the waters that flow into the sea go back up by evaporation then come down by rain and only to do what? Go back into the sea again. What's the point of this? And in verse 14, he concludes, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and they're all meaningless. They're all meaningless. A chasing after the wind. What a depressing conclusion. But you know what? This is what people think about life. In an honest, quiet moment, most people will think this. This is the philosophy of this world. And this is coming from someone who's done everything and you know, seen everything, much more than you and I ever will. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, I'm sure you guys have heard examples and illustrations of this, but celebrities, athletes, businessmen, they reach the pinnacle of their careers. They get the accolades, the trophies. They, get the, you know, they earn millions, if not billions of dollars. And they all, to a man, despair. Countless examples. Um, last week, right? Uh, was it Leicester City Football Club? You know, they, they, they sealed their um, historic championship, right? And the whole country was going crazy. They were all, you know, rooting for the, the little guy. That's what we like to do. And they had these crazy parties. And, you know, what's interesting to me is it's sort of week two, And there's still parties going on, right? And the city is still like drunk over the weekend. And, you know, they just don't want it to end. They want the glory to keep going. Do you know what's going to happen eventually? People are going to forget. Okay? It's a great moment, right? I don't know if you saw it, but um, that opera singer singing, you know, just touching. I I I I got caught up in all of this, and I'm not even English. 
Um, but, you know, sooner rather than later, these people are all going to uh, move on, more money somewhere else, and it's all going to be a, a fading memory. Um, I, I, I'm just going to keep on the sports metaphor while I'm, while, while I'm at it. I, I, I don't really like rugby, okay? So let me just get that out there. When you have an oval ball, you're supposed to throw it forwards, all right? Not backwards. But um, there's a guy called um, uh, Johnny Wilkinson, right? You guys know who he is. You may not be rugby fans, but anyway, he's a famous guy. Um, he's famous because he kicked that winning kick that enabled them to win the World Cup in 2003 or whatever it was. Right? And so he's on every poster board of everything. He became a national hero. He accomplished what every child dreams about. In fact, he's the reason they became champions, right? He doesn't have to pay for a pint of beer for the rest of his life. And listen to his words upon achieving the pinnacle of athletic success. Listen to his words. I didn't know what it was, but my frustration was so intense that I started shouting at the walls, screaming obscenities. I also punished myself for my mistakes. When my left foot let me down, I stamped down hard on it. At one stage, I was so livid that before I knew it, I was sinking my teeth into my hand, trying to bite through the skin between my thumb and index finger. It immediately started to bruise, and the pain was so intense. I remember one time after training, going to the pool. I made sure that no one was around, I lowered myself under the water until I was completely submerged, and then I let out a scream of total frustration. I came up for air and then submerged myself again and screamed again. No words, just pure desperation. I simply could not find any other way of dealing with this nonstop barrage of thoughts and negativity. Eventually, I got to the point where I felt I couldn't escape. My obsessiveness had vacated rugby completely and started to drive my thoughts downwards, tossing endless, dark, nasty images through my head. Here's a guy, he fulfills every dream he ever had. And not only did he hoist the trophy, I mean, he is, he is the guy. He is the darling of rugby. And it drove him to what? To despair. I mean, that's serious right there, right? He's got problems. He's dealing with chronic depression. And that's what Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11 is basically about. It's an observation on life of how unfulfilling and how depressing life is without God. Okay. So, Achieving great things won't satisfy. I hope you've got that. Okay? I hope you get that. And if the world tells you otherwise, that's the devil. All right? So let's, let's, let's move on. What about pleasure? That's what you guys thought about last week. What happened if we focused all of our activities, all of our energies, all of our work towards acquiring the things that make us happy? Or at least that's what the world tells us, right? And that's what we get in verses 12 of chapter 1 through to the second half of the next chapter. Okay, look at chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. And he goes through a whole list of all the things that he enjoys, right? Comedy, verse 1. He loves a good laugh. You know, 
down times, if things aren't good, what do you do? You turn to comedy, you turn to movies, right? Did that satisfy? No. Fine wine, gastronomy, verse 3, okay? I love food, good food especially, okay? And um, so I resonate with this, okay? Living and building grand palaces. I know you guys, some of you at least, you've gone on the, the real estate websites, you've looked at some of those nice houses, right? You've covered it a little bit. <laughs> TV crypt, absolutely, okay? Um, building stunning gardens and pools in those houses, verses four, five, six, I mean, that's, that's what it is, right? Having servants to serve you, cooks to make you healthy but delicious foods, verse seven. Amassing ridiculous amounts of money, so that you have so much disposable income, you've got to go to Sotheby's and like auction for ancient things that have no value whatsoever, right? <laughs> He's done that. Sexual pleasure. Verse 8. We're a culture that is obsessed with sexual pleasure. And it is becoming worse and worse and worse. And we all know that it does not satisfy, does it? And we're slaves to it still. Fame, verse 9. Um, sometimes, my, the way that I live my life, I just go, go, go. I'm like an uh, energizer bunny and until like, I hit the hay, I go to bed. And that's when I begin to process life. So I stay up late, you know, thinking about everything late at night. Um, so, you know, there were periods where I couldn't sleep because I'm just, oh my goodness, thinking about life. My wife's the complete opposite. She gets into bed, her head hits the pillow, count to five, she's out, snoring. Well, no. <laughs> you didn't hear that, right? Um, but I, uh, one of the things that I used to do to just f- try to get my mind of all the things that are in my head was I used to fantasize, a lot, like baseball is one of my favorite sports, okay? Um, don't say rounders or don't, you know, you don't need to insult it. It's a beautiful sport. Um, but I would, I would love picturing in my head, I would get visuals. This, this is the way that I could just move on from all the crazy things uh, about being that pitcher on the mound, like, you know, in the World Series and striking out the New York Yankees. Get the, really, you still got that hat on? Oh, thank the good Lord. Um, but, you know, that, and that's, you know, I, I'll be honest, you know, sometimes, you know, I would I'd dream about that kind of stuff, right? You know, fame glory, um, does that satisfy? Listen to what Kohelet says in verse 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Nothing. I refused my heart no pleasure. Okay? And that's what the world says. The world says you will find satisfaction when you have more of what you already have. Right? That's the way the world spins things. And Kohelet has experienced just about Every pleasure imaginable. And in verse 11, he concludes, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had told to achieve, everything was meaningless. It was chasing after the wind. Can't grasp it. It's gone. Nothing was gained under the sun. And if I can make a side point here, most people believe that people and circumstances exist to make them happy, right? So people expect that the jobs they have should sort of get you what you want and make you happy. Um, People expect that um, love, marriage, 
right? You get married because you expect that somehow, you know, your partner can bring you happiness. You objectify relationships. Um, People come to church. They come to church and they think, you know, Pastor Ephraim and Pastor Rob, you know, if I can just go to them, you know, they, they can fix my problems. Okay? Everything exists to make me better. That's the way of the world. Here's the problem with that type of thinking. When you're not happy, when all of that doesn't work, who are you going to blame? You're going to blame, blame the people, aren't you? You're going to blame the thing that you're hoping on. Work, church, your spouse, right? If your fulfillment is in fallen people, what do you think is going to happen? They're going to fail you. If your desire, your need for satisfaction is found in things that are broken and cursed in this world, right? This world is cursed because of sin. Everything is difficult in this world. What's going to happen? You will never be fully satisfied, will you? Okay? goes round and round circles. You will never be fully satisfied because you are banking on broken cisterns that cannot satisfy. So anyway, in uh, that second part of Ecclesiastes, we see that the greatest pleasures in this world can't satisfy. So in verse 12, what does Kohelet turn to? Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom. Okay, personal success, material wealth, Lavish pleasures, none of that satisfies. Okay, what about wisdom? Surely a life of wisdom is a good thing, right? If I can just be a guru and, you know, have inner peace and, you know, whatever your definition of wisdom is, it's a good thing. Surely. The Bible commands it. Proverbs 3.3 3 says, seek wisdom. There's another verse in Proverbs that said, says wisdom is better than rubies. It's a good thing. My name, uh, if you haven't caught it yet, because it's not very easy, is it? Um, is solgi. Korean word. It's a modern word. Um, it means wisdom. Now, I grew up thinking that, you know, I was wise. That's why my parents <laughs> named me that. But in reality, it's probably because they knew I needed a lot of wisdom. So they called me Solgi, all right? But one of the things that um, I appreciate about my East Asian roots is that they actually really do value and esteem wisdom, okay? So my father, for example, um, he would drill these sort of wise sayings to me, like, you know, the Chinese proverbs, that type of thing. Um, and, you know, when I was very young, he would say all these things to me, like, I was apparently a kid that loved hanging out with everybody. You know, I just, I was the town mayor. I loved hanging out with people. But I didn't have a lot of deep, close friendships. So he would say to me, um, a friend to everyone is a friend to no one. Right? And you just say that just to help me think about my social relationships. Or when I, there was one moment um, when I was about 11, 12 years old, I failed miserably at something. My life was shattered. And he once said to me, a fall into a ditch makes you wise. Right? I, might, I, mean, I appreciate that about my father. He's a very wise man. It's a good thing. Wisdom's a good thing. The Old Testament affirms it. The book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to see this. If you read through it, it is it's one of the biggest themes in the book. Wisdom. Okay? 
So we know it's not a bad thing. Jesus in the New Testament is actually personified as the wisdom of God. Jesus himself is wisdom. Okay? Um, So surely this is going to be the solution to life's big problems. If we become wise. Well, yes and no. Wisdom is a good thing. But as we've seen in... uh, Chapter 1, it's a good thing. Here, in chapter 2, though, it's wisdom in itself doesn't bring profit. There's nothing it really adds. You can't gain anything. Why? Because the same fate awaits the idiot and the, and the wise man, right? Do you remember that, um, I think, Pastor Ephraim used that illustration about, was it the the smartest man in the world? Doctor, doctor, or is it doctor, doctor, doctor? Doctor, doctor, doctor. Okay, three doctors. Um, All that studying, all that thinking, all of that wisdom, gone in a crash, right? Gone in a crash. Um, Verse 16, like the fool, the wise man too must die. And it's bad enough that there isn't this sort of um, personal gain in life from all of your work. Like, I, this, this, this is me, right? This is what I do. I read, I teach, I write. Um, this is my life, okay? I've been in formal training since uh, I was uh, um, six years old all the way through till 37 years old. I, there was not a year where I was not taking a class, all right? I don't know, do the math, what is that? I'm not, I'm not a mathematician, but okay. Many, many, many years. Um, that is my life. And yet, I am being faced with the reality that my work means, well, in some senses, it means nothing. So it's hard enough that there's no personal gain from all of your work. It's even harder to fathom that no one will remember anything you've done. Verse 16. Okay? Next generation, they may or may not remember you. If you've written something, maybe. But the, the generation after that, nope. Okay? And even the super, super, you know, well-known people, three, four hundred years, no one's going to remember them. But look down at verses 18 through 19. This is really difficult, right? To think that all that one has gained and worked hard for all their life might be handed on a silver platter to someone once you're dead who is a fool. Like, they just take it. And that basically drives Kohelet to conclude on the basis of his observations, work, wisdom, everything in life, when viewed from a human vantage point, is just an evil business. That's what he describes it as. It is an evil business, okay? So you wonder, like, why people are... um, um, protesting about capitalism and, you know, all these injustices. You can see why that is, because life is crazy. It's, 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 it's messed up. Because death is going to make a fool of us. And this leads him, in verse 17, he says, right, so I hated life. Strong words. But this is actually where things start to turn for Kohelet, Okay. Up until now, everything's been meaningless. It ends in death, so why bother? Um, what difference does it make to how we live our lives if we're going to die? 
Um, do you guys remember hashtag YOLO? Yeah. Right? You only, what is it? You only live w- once, right? Um, it was all the rage. I can't remember. It was a Drake. Somebody popularized it. And then all the young people thought it just caught on fire. It went crazy. They said, yeah, let's do crazy things. You only live once. Why not? And they just started doing really, really dangerous things. Um, there's even a, um, I think an aspiring rapper in Canada who um, put it fam- or infamously put it on social media, said, I'm drinking, driving, doing drugs, whatever. I got friends with me. You only live, hashtag you only live once. A couple of minutes later, crashes, everyone's dead. Okay? Um, now, that's crazy. But if what is visible about the world is right, if the philosophy of this world is right, if there is only one life to live, if there is no God, if there is no eternity, can't blame him, right? You got one life to live, and it's all crazy, it's all meaningless. Why not? Go do some crazy thing, you know, experience that thrill. Because that's all we can do. It's enticing. But here in the seam between verse 23 and 24, okay? Have a look right there. Just as the outlook on life is the bleakest, it's as if Kohelet pauses, clears his throat, and then finally tells us what he sees, okay? What God says. And this is where theology starts to creep in, okay? This is where you get some of this other side. Up until now, Everything has been about the way the world sees things. This is the reason why in chapter 2, verse 1 to 23, you don't see God. God's not mentioned once. Look who's the main character in verses 24 through 26. Who's it about? It's all about God, isn't it? And here in these verses, it's not going to be drawn out. It's not going to be this grand explanation. You're going to get Three little truths. Three reminders that will reframe your thinking. If you're a Christian, even if you're not, if you want wisdom, pay attention, okay? There are three little truths here that are going to give us the heavenly perspective. What God sees, okay? This is life as we see it. This is what God says. The first truth, verse 24. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. Why? Because this too, I see, is from the hand of God. Think about that. Everything is from the hand of God. This meaningless life that people do not, will not acknowledge God as their creator, that's from the hand of God. But, on this hand, pleasure is good. It's the first time we hear that. Pleasure is good. Eat, drink, find satisfaction in your work. Why? Because it is a gift from God. And the book will go on maintaining this unresolved tension. Okay, life's crazy. Work is a gift from God. Okay? Those are at odds, right? Until you get to about chapter 11 and 12. So you've got to be patient. It's a crazy book. It's a philosophical, a philosophical book. There are reasons why it does what it does. It's not the kind of thing you wake up, you know, when you, when you need encouragement, you go to a psalm, right? You don't go to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This is a book that you've got to be patient and struggle with and wrestle with because when you get to chapter 12, that for, uh, the one 
line that just blows my mind every time I read it. It's just, it's like a trumpet. Remember your creator, chapter 12, verse 1. Okay, keep that in your head. I don't want to give things away that these guys are going to preach later on. But that's, that's like the clarion call that we need to remember. Remember your creator, okay? So here, what I want you to notice for the time being is that for the first time, we are told that pleasure, when enjoyed correctly, with a God-centered orientation, is a, it's from the hand of God. That's what we see, right? The Bible never treats physical pleasures as being intrinsically bad, okay? And conversely, it doesn't treat spiritual things as being intrinsically good. Sometimes we abuse spirituality, all right? Think about that. But here we've got that tension again. Bible says pleasures aren't inherently wrong, and yet the observation of Kohelet is that this world's messed up. Okay? Pleasures, they don't fulfill you at all. What's the problem? How do we resolve this? Well, the problem is us. God gives us good pleasures. He gives us work to do. He gives us godly wisdom to live by. But the problem is that we twist and we pervert the good pleasures that God gives us. We make them idols. Okay? You know what idolatry is? I've said this to my children. Idolatry is when we take a good thing and we make it an ultimate thing. It's when we forget that the pleasures that we experience in life are a gift from God. And we think that somehow it is something that we have apart from God. You see that? We idolize things when we feel entitled and expect pleasures. Okay, We expect it. We want it now. And you know what? If that's the way you think, if that's your framework of this world... Eventually, before you know it, a good pleasure will become an obsession. And it will dominate your life. It will shackle you. And an inversion takes place whereby we no longer receive pleasures from our creator God. We start thinking that we are gods who deserve pleasures and we demand it from the world. C.S. Lewis, um, I don't know if you know him, he he wrote the Narnia Chronicles and whatnot, but he wrote a lesser-known story, which is brilliant, you should read it. Um, It's called The Screwtape Letters, okay? Basically, Screwtape is a demon. He's the senior demon. And he's having a conversation. I'm just going to read you something. He's having a conversation. He's instructing his nephew called Wormwood. Brilliant name, Wormwood. And he's trying to explain to Wormwood how you destroy the human souls, the art of destroying people, okay? And this is what he says. Listen to what Screwtape says. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy, normal, and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. Who's the enemy? God, okay? I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same... It is his, God's. It is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. 
All we can do, this is the bit, all we can do is to encourage the human to take the pleasure which our enemy has produced at times or in ways and in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. It is more certain, and it's better style, to get the man's soul and give him nothing in return. That is what gladden our father's heart, Satan. To get the man's soul and to give him nothing in return. That's what worldly pleasure will do to you. It will eat your soul. There'll be nothing left of you. So here's that dichotomy, right? All pleasures come from God, but the devil is desperately trying to twist our minds so that we will idolize pleasures and that we will turn to pleasures for ultimate satisfaction. And friends, if you don't want to live that dark and meaningless life that this world is selling you, that the devil is selling you, okay? Remember this truth. Verse 24. God is the source of all good things. All things come from him and are to be enjoyed for his glory alone. Okay? If we take God's good pleasures and we enjoy them outside of his boundaries, we are idolaters. We worship idols. Okay? Second truth that we are given is found in verse 25. I've completely lost track of time, so you guys tell me if I need to stop. All right? Um, The second truth we are given is found in verse 25. For without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? Okay, let that sink in. For without God, who can do any of this? What's he saying? Okay, we can do nothing apart from God. It is a correcting of something that we've just somehow along the way we've forgotten, all right? Kohela is reminding us God is the creator. What are we? We're creatures. We were created. That's who we are. Okay? We're created. God is the giver. We're the receivers. And without God, we're nothing but dust. Okay? Why is this important to us? This is important to us because we are rebels at heart. We are rebels. We love autonomy. We love independence, okay? We want to be our own gods. Does that remind you of anything in Scripture? Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3, right? Adam and Eve. Remember that? Adam and Eve. Why did they listen to Satan? Why did they disobey God? Why did they take that fruit? Because they didn't want to be subservient to God. They wanted to make their own rules. They wanted to live as they saw fit. They wanted to be autonomous. And that is the sin, the original sin in the garden. And here's the genius of Kohelet, okay? The meaningless or futility that Ecclesiastes exposes is when one tries to find meaning in life while living for ourselves 
in a world that depends utterly at every point on the Creator. So instead of looking to God, our Creator, for meaning in life, to make sense of this crazy world, for value, for guidance, for sustenance, for daily bread, what do we do? We, the creatures, the created things, we act as if we're gods. And that somehow that we can provide for ourselves. We can go get what we need. You see how absurd that is? Um, my four-year-old son loves playing with Legos. It's about this big. In fact, I left him this morning playing with Legos. Um, he's got a great imagination, okay? And you know, usually the way he plays Legos is he builds like a car house. He's got a Lego man. He's got another Lego man. And he imagines, you know, that something's going on. You know, they're playing. There's some, you know, these two are interacting on a horizontal level. But it was fascinating. A couple of weeks ago, there was a bit of a shift. And he built a Lego man. I think it was a car he had. And he started personally, the creator, my son, was interacting with the created Lego. Okay, about this big, right? Lego man. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about? And he's imagining that now the Lego man is interacting with him. And the Lego man says to my son, he says, I'm going to put you into jail. And my son, the creator, says, no, don't do that. Something like that, right? That was a fascinating little thing going on, you know, like where, you know, so I was thinking, wow, that's a different type of imagination. Um, but, you know, my son, who is like thousands of times bigger than this tiny little Lego figure, is being bossed around. Okay? Do you see how twisted and inverted that silly example is? Well, that's precisely what we're doing. That's how absurd it is that we look to our creator and we shun him and we say, I got this. We can figure it out. Okay? And Kohelet reminds us that we can't do anything apart from God. Whatever you think you, you are accomplishing, that's his grace and his mercy upon you. Okay? And if you start to forget that, you will lose your way. Mark my words, you will lose your way. You will find yourself back in Eden, being tempted by Satan to turn your back on God, to become your own little God, to rule your own little kingdom, and destroy yourself in the process. We are nothing but mortal creatures. That's what we just saw in verses 15 and 16, right? Mortality, right? Ironically, is what brings sense into us. Death is what gives us our answer. I know you guys have been struggling with death in this church. And I want to be sensitive. But think about this, right? What does death teach us? Death teaches us that, well, death is the ultimate statement that we have no control. It's not ours to take or to give. Every generation has tried to stem the tide of death. They've tried to prolong life. Billions of dollars are spent on this, right? Cancer research, or, you know, everyone's looking for the elixir of life. They want to delay death. They want to conquer death. But death reminds us that in the end, we have no control. Only God has ultimate control. Who are you going to trust then? Final thing we're reminded is in verse 26. 
We're reminded there that uh, we need the pleasure of God. Okay, twice. This is a bit of a tricky verse, and I'm not going to get into it um, in terms of the technical stuff, but twice in this verse it mentions pleasing God. Okay? Now, basically what this verse is saying is that the believer is someone who God looks at. Some translations won't bring that out. But basically what it's saying is, if you love God, God looks at you and says, you are my pleasure. And that should radically alter the way that we think about life and all of life's big issues, right? Okay? You are my pleasure. I delight in you. When God looks at you, he is filled with pleasure and delight. How does that make you feel? If you believe in this, right? If you believe in this, if you marinate in this and just think about it, meditate on it, pray about it, if you believe that God is delighted in you, then that should transform the way you live, right? You, you don't, you're not working hard for yourself, are you? Because God already delights in you. You can let go. Look at verse 26. To the person whom God is pleased with, God gives wisdom. God gives knowledge. God gives happiness. And so when we live in the shadow of our creator, all of our longings are covered. We are fulfilled as created beings. We have purpose in life. We have every pleasure that we need in this life to glorify God with. The only thing we need to do is to let go. Give up this obsessive, compulsive need to have, to be, to think. Because Jesus Christ has accomplished everything that needs to happen. Listen to these words in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. I know the Old Testament isn't the sexiest part of the New Testament. I know that nobody really goes to Zephaniah, but I love this verse. Yahweh your God is among you. He is with you. He is a warrior who saves you. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will bring you quietness. You ever wanted that? Peace? God will bring you peace with his love. He will delight in you with shouts of joy. When was the last time you thought about how God thinks about you? If you truly believe that this is how God feels about you, if you really believe that you are the joy that Jesus set before him when he went to the cross, scorning its shame, right? If you believe that you are the reason Jesus endured all of that suffering, if you believe this, it should radically change the way you view work. It should change the way that you handle your God-given pleasures. It should change everything. So, I'm just going to end there because I think I'm, I'm some of my time. Next time you are tempted 
to believe in this set of lies. Next time you feel uh, the devil discouraging you, telling you that you need more, telling that you need things, that if you had a, a better living situation, a better work situation, a better monetary situation, go to these verses in, in Ecclesiastes 2. Let me just reread them. A person can do nothing better than to eat, drink, and find satisfaction in their work because it is from the hand of God. For without God, we can do nothing. We cannot find enjoyment. We cannot eat. And to the person whom God finds great pleasure in, God will give you wisdom. He will give you knowledge. And he will give you happiness. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the struggles of this book in Ecclesiastes because it so resonates with what we see in the world today. We see so much brokenness. We see so much abuse. And we see so much heartache. And Father, we confess that we've experienced a lot of this. And perhaps it's our experience that we have not turned to our Creator, that we have not acknowledged you as the God who delights in us, who has created us to be in a relationship with us. And if that's us, Lord, we confess that we have twisted our view of you. Please, would you help us to see rightly? Would you help us to be creatures once again and not false kings? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.